This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the No Film School podcast. My name is Yaroslav Altunin. I am the tech editor of No Film School, but I'm also a multi-hyphenate creative filmmaker, I guess. I've directed, I've written, currently a screenwriter in the film space. I've been an editor for about 15 plus years, and I've been a cinematographer as well. So whenever I see a multi-hyphenate just get some immense success, I'm always excited to chat with them. And this is why I'm super excited to chat with my guests today. The creator of Onyx, a character who I've been acquainted with for almost a decade. And Onyx is now the character, or now the titular character of his own film, Onyx the Fortuitous and the Talisman of Souls. This premiered at Sundance and is written, directed, edited, and starring Andrew Bowser. Andrew, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Well, <laughs> at the time I met Onyx, he was known as the weird Satanist guy. So I'd love to hear more about how. You met Onyx and how you created him and where he came from. And you've been with him for, what, about a decade now? About 10 years, yeah. Well, the first Onyx video was was Weird Gamer Guy. Oh, but then okay. right after that was Weird Satanist Guy. But a lot of people didn't meet him until the third video, which was Weird Arby's Guy. <laughs> but I met him a few months before Weird Gamer Guy. I had been taking improv classes at UCB. And also my, my day job was producing and editing for different kind of nerdy video outlets. Okay. At the time I was working for break.com and we were going to a lot of conventions, filming at Comic-Con, filming at E3. And I remember one day after improv class, I had an idea for a character who had a nervous tick that he would say, I don't know, no matter what he had just said, even if it was something he was very certain of, what's your favorite? Horror movie, Pumpkinhead, I don't know. <laughs> and I felt like that backpedaling and that nervous tick of I don't know was a little window into a new comedic character. And I remember telling my wife after I came up with the I don't know, I said, I want to do a character. He's so insecure and so nervous. He always says, I don't know. And she said, okay. <laughs> but for me, it was this revelation. I felt like I had, I had found something to pursue just creatively. I was curious about this guy. And so I wrote the script for Weird Gamer Guy. And when we shot it, you know, that's where a lot of the tropes of Onyx were dialed in. Him calling himself Onyx. Him saying, maybe I'm not Mark who works at Arby's. Maybe I'm more than that. He has a stepdad, Todd. He doesn't have a great relationship with his mother. All that stuff is in the first Onyx video. And basically from there, I just kept exploring his interior life and world building through these viral videos. And it was so cool. 
to to see that because for me it wasn't you know I didn't stumble upon it on YouTube. It kind of just popped up on like the weird internet radar that we all had back then, and I was like, oh, yeah. this is real. Mm-hmm. And for the longest, not, I want to say the longest time because you know so much time has passed, but for a while I was like, oh, this is real because I know people like that. And I think that's what made it so endearing when I found out that it was a character because it was it was lived in and it had these kind of interesting quirks that were fun and and you know gave him a lot more life and and I and I really liked yeah. that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about you know this like film journey you had with with Onyx. What made you kind of want to pick him as as a character? And oh, before we jump into that, when you said, you know, that tick, I don't know, it reminded me of this thing I saw at Groundlings, which was, they called it a refrigerator joke. Where like, at the moment, you're like, that's not funny. And then like, you <laughs> open the refrigerator like a month later, and you're like, huh. <laughs> you know, and you've laughed. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's the same thing with I don't know. It's like, you're like, okay, that's, that's weird. And then a month later, you're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. I think Onyx as a character might be one big refrigerator joke because He's kind of come and gone through people's consciousness over the years, and he'll just keep circling back at different times, um, whether it be a video that brings him back into people's purview or whether, yeah, just be a, a catchphrase or a mm-hmm, quote mm-hmm. that kind of settles in somewhere. I, I hear from people that their friends quote weird Arby's guy all the time, <laughs> or I did a video at a comic shop where Onyx is caught buying a, a taboo graphic novel. Some people quote that, but a lot yeah. of times they won't even remember where the quote came from. And then they'll, they'll remember it was an Onyx video. But it, yeah, my, my path with Onyx and film has been really circuitous, not to try and rhyme with fortuitous, but I was a child actor in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. and then and loved acting, uh, but I hated auditioning. I really didn't like the uh, the insecurity I felt when auditioning and how quickly things could be changed on me. Somebody could all of a sudden say, oh, we're not doing those sides. Oh, you didn't get the new sides? No, here's the new sides. And then all of a sudden I'm a nine-year-old doing a cold read yeah, for a feature or a Broadway play. I would practice songs to sing and the accompanist might start playing in the wrong key and I wouldn't have the guts to tell them to stop because I never felt like I was in control. Someone else in the room was in control. And so I... I was led to writing and directing purely out of a, a want for more control. But then as I started to write and direct in high school, I realized that that was more world building. That was more uh, exciting for my imagination, which is why I liked acting in the first place, was to kind of pretend that I was in some other land or pretend that I was going off on some adventure. And through writing and directing, I could more control that adventure. And so after high school, I went to the School of Visual Arts for film. And I was a directing major and, and I know this is no film school, but I had film school, but I only had it for two years. I ran out of money and had to move back to Maryland and couldn't finish film school, but I learned enough in those two years to really set me on my path. Mm -hmm. And I think the lesson I learned was to make your own film school. Even if you do graduate from a film school, I immediately started giving myself tasks. I started shooting music videos for bands that didn't ask for them. And I would just shoot a narrative music video on my own time with my friends. And then I would put them on DVD and go to concerts in DC and give the demo reel to those bands. I just, I just kept going in, in, in my own self-made film school. And then when I finally moved to LA, my job was primarily an editor Mm -hmm. and I was editing for these video outlets. 
And then that's kind of when Onyx fused with my filmmaker side and even my editor side, because so many of the Onyx videos are editing gags. Mm -hmm. And so Onyx just became like a vessel for me to explore kind of different formats of sketch comedy and now, you know, ultimately a narrative feature that he was always kind of my child actor self frozen in time oh, now fused with my matured filmmaker mm. self matured, immature, <laughs> but, but matured to a degree. Okay. I, that's interesting that you said that most of Onyx is kind of an editing no, would you say gimmick or an editing kind of? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to kind of touch on that a little bit later, but since we've kind of touched on the subject, what, what was the, I guess, say more about that? Yeah. Well, I think I just, was it, whether it was because it was my job or whether I just liked the format, but I liked the idea of creating a video package that had the branding and mm-hmm. the framework of a real man on the street package that one of the companies would make that I worked for. And I don't know why it tickled me, but it just did. I loved making up fake names. The first game gamer guy video was Game Smash Media and getting the logo made. And, and maybe there was something to, I guess I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder having to make content like that as a yeah. producer and an editor because I was, you know, I was a filmmaker. But I, I really just should have been thankful that I had a job in LA, any job. So maybe kind of, spoofing that format was a weird way of like rebelling against the work I was having to do or showing just how formulaic it was, you know, this many sound bites, this many cuts of B-roll, this many wraparounds and we're out, you know, this many music cue changes. And I just knew that I had that down pat because that was my job. And so it just was natural to, to do something comedic within that format. But the real exciting thing was when I hosted a, a supernatural podcast and somebody sent me a link to a, a news video out of Detroit about uh, a satanic temple that had a statue of Baphomet. And it was being protested by some locals that didn't agree with, the, with that church. And that was the first time I realized I could make an Onyx video, but not shoot it whole cloth. Because as I was watching that news report, I saw, wow, that lower third is really clean. It's not transparent. It's like completely opaque. So I could cut it out. Mm-hmm. There's no music. The the VO from the from the newscaster doesn't really go over any of the sound bites. And so my editor brain was like, you could shoot Onyx out on the street in Burbank and splice him into that really efficiently. And that was the I think a little more viral than Weird Gamer Guy. Mm-hmm. And that became the format for a while, finding these news videos and splicing myself in. And those were really edit jobs. You know, I, th- I think about the edit of those more than I even think about the performance in those videos, because I'm thinking as an editor the entire time yeah. and di- and dialing back when the joke is a little too clear and too on the nose, but then also knowing, well, it's got to spike a little for it to be shareable. And just finding that balance was always an edit thing too. I would write those things and they'd be like eight pages long. And then I would cut them down to, you know, two and a half minutes. I like that. I I remember realizing that all the stuff you shot around it was just real stuff. It was a real kind of like, and I think that's what made that moment for Onyx so real is that I thought he just showed up and someone filmed him and then like, but no, that was, that was your editing, editing trickery. You, yeah. uh, you pulled one over on us. Uh, <laughs> so with, with the feature, you, 
I, I want to ask more about the development of it. You know, my relationship to it was being a Kickstarter backer when when you did yeah. the, the the campaign for it, the crowdfunding campaign for it. And, you know, as a backer, I'm excited to see the film coming out October 18th. 19th. 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 Because it's going to be all over the place in Santa Monica and in, in Universal City. So yeah. definitely go check that out, everybody. But tell me a little bit more about how you got this off the ground on your own. Because you did kind of, it feels like you got it off on your off the ground just by like putting it on your back and climbing up the hill. <laughs> Partially. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, but the irony is that I thought, well, I, I'm just going to do this by myself. If nobody wants an Onyx movie, nobody out here in LA was financing an Onyx film through any traditional routes. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'll just do it myself. But then the do it myself became 7,495 people <laughs> needing to come on. You being yeah. one of them. Thank you for backing. And, and, and then the whole project, the whole journey became about, Onyx finding his crew and his squad and finding support. But as an artist and a filmmaker, the crowdfunding effort kind of forced me to find my community and engage with them more. But it came about because, you know, I couldn't get an Onyx movie going. I couldn't get any proper feature going. I'd made Mm -hmm. three other feature films and they were all arguably experimental. One was a mockumentary. One was found footage. And and one was shot entirely on a GoPro done in two takes with an actor wearing a Snorricam. Oh, wow. where the cameras attached to their chest. And each of those films had had moderately successful festival runs. One of them was at South by, one of them was at Seattle International. And I got enough good feedback to keep me going, mm-hmm. but none of them really broke. And none of them were traditionally shot and edited narrative features. Mm-hmm. Again, they were all a bit more experimental in their form. And I wanted to make something that was more traditional in its presentation and I knew it would have to be crowdfunded because I had a number of scripts that I couldn't get anywhere over the years. And the only leverage I have with the internet is Onyx. So I sat down and thought, well, what would the Onyx crowdfunded film be? And because nobody was asking for it, you know, I tried to fit Onyx into other people's companies and studios over the years when they were looking for pitches. And they were saying, well, let me, what's like, a, we need like an Ali G show. Oh, well, I got this. I know this guy that does this character. So could Onyx be Ali G? Maybe. Well, hey, Eric Andre's big or Jackass. Could Onyx have like a prank show? And I had pitched all these Onyx projects over the years just because someone was looking for something, but not Onyx. They weren't looking for whatever Onyx project I truly cared about. But because it was crowdfunded, I could just think about what Onyx movie I wanted and what I thought the fans would want. And that was what led me to the subgenre of horror comedy especially a throwback to the films from the 80s, because that's what I grew up on and that's what I love. And when I sat down to write it, kind of with no external pressure, just the whatever internal interest I had, as soon as I said it in that subgenre, it was very easy mm-hmm. to write. And I could see exactly what I wanted Onyx to do, where I wanted him to go, and the kind of silly adventures that he would have within a movie like A Fright Night or a Gremlins or A Night of the Creeps. And so the crowdfunding really informed the uniqueness of the project because I didn't have a boss, you know, you could other do whatever than you my, want. Yeah. yeah, myself and my backers. Yeah. I wonder how, you know, having this kind of freedom and, and allowing, it allowed you to kind of go into these weird spaces that, that made you feel comfortable. And I think that's where like all movies succeed is when we find that place of comfort in that place of, you know, childhood play, then like wonderful things happen. We're like, oh, this is so awesome. Like nobody's mm-hmm. thinking about money, you know? Mm-hmm. And then like you make something and it's wonderful. And so when when you were getting closer to kind of production, was there were there any 
fears or kind of obstacles that were just kind of constantly getting in your way? And, and what did you do to kind of overcome them? The only, the, I, I was lucky that my producers, Clark, Michael, and Olivia were all very supportive of my vision and my world. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, we did need to find further financing outside of the Kickstarter mm-hmm. money. And my producers found that financing and they found investors that also wanted my vision and my world. So I was very lucky in that regard. I think the only time I got a little discouraged was I got some notes on the script early on from from an acquaintance that that works in the industry. And I felt really good about the script. And the notes from this person were very direct. They literally said, this is not the Onyx movie you're supposed Mm. to make. There's, There's a better idea. You've spent 10 years on this character. I, I think you need this. I think you need that. I, and they listed all of these elements that they felt were missing from the story. And I'm not going to lie. It, it did throw me into a bit of a tailspin just because the stakes were so high yeah. that I was going all in on this thing that I felt so sure of. And actually, my producer, Olivia, is the one that said, those are bad notes. <laughs> and. And I actually went ahead and just as a as an experiment, started rewriting the script from page one. Oh, no. And this is after the Kickstarter was done. So you haven't shot yet, but you're you're kind of partially funded. I'm just thinking like, okay, well, what it, is there another movie? Did I write the quote unquote wrong mm-hmm. Onyx movie? Yeah. And I got 15 pages in and I was like, this is the wrong movie. Yeah. The one I wrote in my garage, like feeling that sense of play mm-hmm. and feeling that sense of kind of, open imagination, that is the right Onyx movie because of my instincts. And it was nice because no offense to the person that sent me those notes, but it was a good barometer. It gave me some friction and I had to really get certain of what I had written. And, and I then was, I, I then was certain because I reread the script that I liked and thought there's a reason I like this. And there is no right or wrong Onyx movie. It's, it's, it's what I feel led to to pursue that, that makes it right. Or you know, if that's even a word you can apply to this situation. And, and so then we moved forward and, and that was the only time I really felt like a hiccup in the kind of like determination that I had for the project. Yeah. I find it that, that when I get notes or just, I hear people give notes, it's a lot of subjectivity and it's like, mm-hmm. it's the movie they want to see. And, you know, that's yeah. totally fine. Like, everybody has their own vision of a movie. You know, it's really difficult to see something clearly when you read another page. And everybody has their own, yeah. kind of, you know, uh, lens for it. So, yeah. I, I, I totally understand that. But it's, it's, it's nice to hear your experience on it where you were like, okay, let me fight this. And then the movie fights back. And it's like, no, no, we're good. Oh, yeah. We're okay. We're, let's move forward. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Olivia. And Olivia also played Farah in the movie and also produced it. How was it mm-hmm. having someone, I mean, this whole movie feels like it's a multi-hyphenate, you know, with you wearing all the hats and mm-hmm. Olivia wearing double duty. Was there anybody else on set that had kind of multiple hats? And how was it having kind of creatives who were on, I guess, the business side of it, but also on the creative side mm-hmm. of it, supporting you? Well, I think in my case, it was for the better. I also, one of my other producers, Clark, is a director in his own right and a writer and it, it helped because my producers could solve problems uh, in ways that were still informed by the creative. You know, mm-hmm. they, they weren't saying, hey, we're, we're running low on time. Why don't we just cut this big thing that matters? 
they would say, we're running low on time. Do you have a plan for how to still get a version of this? Because we know it's important to the story. So they were able to have a creative outlook as well as being concerned with the more producerial aspects of their job. What's nice about also my director of photography is that because I'm on camera through this, Olivia and Dan, my DP, really become my eyes. There's no time on a, on a, on a film this small to watch back every yeah. take. And for me playing Onyx, I can't sit through a playback of him ranting for two minutes and, and try to <laughs> tweak every eyebrow raise yeah. or like bead of sweat. So Olivia and Dan were really integral in shaping my performance. And there were times where both of them or one of them even said, I think you're going to want to do that again. And I thought I got it. And then they would tell me why. And they were right. So it was important to find people like that, that I could trust and listen to, to keep things moving, but also kind of be a little more strict on myself. And this kind of leads me into you being the director and the star and the writer. You know, you have this kind of through line where you know the material so well. You created not only the kind of the foundational character, but also the script and, you know, you're, you're directing the, the feature. Uh-huh. How was that for your anxiety to start with? And then, you know, what are the challenges of doing that? You know, because I know other filmmakers are kind of finding themselves in that position where they have to, uh-huh. where they feel like they have to do everything. But then, you know, you find support like in Olivia and, and in uh-huh. your DP. Yeah, let me tell me a little bit more about that journey for you as a director specifically. Well, it, it's it's ultimately just how I've kind of been built out, and whether that was circumstance or necessity. I remember after my freshman year of film school, I shot a feature in my hometown, mm-hmm. like on mini DV, you know, and it cost I nine dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and I brought the footage back to film school for my sophomore year, and I thought, let me—I didn't know how to edit at that point, and I thought, let me find an editing major to tackle the feature. And I found a guy and we talked, we had a few meetings and he lived in like this six floor walk up many, many blocks from where I lived. And I took him all my hard drives and I said, you know, I'll see you in this many weeks and we'll look at an assembly. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yep, come back in six weeks. I'll have an assembly. I came back in six weeks. He hadn't touched it. Oh. And in that moment, I said, well, I'm going to learn to edit. I can't, I will never be in this position again. And again, I don't know if it's because of my obsessive side or just my i mean not wanting to feel a lack of control over the years i just wrote directed edited and then there's even a lot of control as an actor mm-hmm. and so that's just how i kind of have been built out as a creative for better or for worse and and now i don't want anyone else to edit anything that i direct because i shoot for the edit you know yeah. I get through a day or make a day a little quicker because I know how I'm going to cut it and my DP knows how I'm going to cut it and we collaborate on that. So it's just ultimately been how I've been built out. But there, the benefit is that you can do things like, oh, hey, we're running short on time. Let's put all of Onyx's close-ups at the end of the day. We can wrap all the other actors and, and Andrew can just sit on camera and act to no one <laughs> for the last hour. I wouldn't necessarily act, ask that yeah. of one of my actors. Anytime I was asking my actors to do their close-ups with no one playing opposite them, I felt bad because you know it's going to be better that they have someone in the scene. But I don't mind asking Andrew the actor that because Andrew the actor is saving Andrew the director's ass <laughs> by yeah. doing that. And 
I memorized because I wrote the thing and have thought about this for many, many months. So the only way a movie like the Onyx movie exists is because so many different people were wearing so many different hats. It's def- myself in- included. I mean, we couldn't have cut it in the amount of time that we cut it if I wasn't the editor. Yeah, it definitely. Know, I didn't know the footage. It definitely feels like a labor of love, you know? Yeah. And every good film, I think, is, and everything that we kind of want to pursue should be. You don't want to, yeah. like, put, what, how many years have you been working on this? Like, four or five? Well, no, we didn't. We launched the Kickstarter in, was it 2021? Mm-hmm. And then we shot, let's see, we shot in February 2021. And then we 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 kicked her, and then 2022 March, we shot, and then January 2023 we premiered. When, when did you start so writing? About three years, uh, just right before the Kickstarter. Oh, wonderful. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. So three years. You've you've put three, three years, years of yeah. your life into this, and that's an investment. And so, like, yeah, yeah. If you don't love it, don't do it. You know that that's been my <laughs> <Yeah>. motto. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about set. You know, that's always the most fun thing for me. Is like first falling in love with my characters and then being on set and just having a good time. And uh, predominantly the whole thing, the whole film is shot in one location, a big mansion with, Uh you know, some scenes in the beginning and, you know, I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it, but you know, you had a a substantial amount of VFX and puppet work to contend with too. What were the challenges working kind of with, you know, puppets and VFX on, on what I'm assuming is a, is a tight budget, you know, because I know you had some funding. Yeah. I, I think the biggest challenge for VFX is is having the time to actually get all of the assets and elements that you need from set. You know, mm-hmm. any VFX shot, you need this many plates or you want to get this many 3D scans or still photos with these marks or this reflective ball and this, you know, colored chart. Yeah. And you don't always have the time on an indie to get all of those assets. But we had a really great VFX supervisor who's also our post soup named Jeremy. And he was on set for the most vfx heavy days Mm -hmm. and so he you know i could even go and change and go into get into my next wardrobe while jeremy and my dp dan were getting the assets that they needed as far as like let's get a shot of the ground with the lights on and the lights off that are going to be the the help it spoiler alert (laughs) uh you know and and i would leave and say okay so you guys are going to get this 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 and that all right i'm going to go get into my next outfit and for the practical effects We actually had gone to Denver where the creature team is based Mm -hmm. and shot a sizzle reel with the puppets in order to raise further financing. Just for that kind of addition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think if we hadn't done that, we would have encountered more issues on set because that sizzle reel also acted as a little bit of like research and development for each of the creatures. This one's too heavy. Can this one's mouth move a little more? These eyes aren't connecting. Why are we having an issue with the remote? And Doing that sizzle reel helped us find more money, but it also gave some directives to the creature team as to what to change between now and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we didn't have, I was honestly surprised at how smoothly the the puppetry went. The big nine-foot-tall demon that we have, it went really well. The little beefy bad boy, we actually shot it quicker than expected. The ghouls were the the most difficult just because they're sometimes three different people involved on their knees oh with an arm through one uh, hand and then another arm being held on a rod, someone doing eyes, and they have wardrobe that includes a robe and a hat and necklaces. So the ghouls were the most difficult, but even then we got everything we needed. 
and all the puppeteers had practiced enough to where we really weren't slowed down too too badly on set. It feels, and when I saw it, it, it felt a lot like like Henson, but not for children. You know, it yeah. had that kind of vibe to it, and I really appreciated it. Just because uh-huh. growing up on Sesame Street and seeing kind of all the early non Sesame Street Henson stuff, like yeah. Farscape, and then what was the was it the Dark Crystal? Dark Crystal, yeah. And there's a movie that he just did a few creatures for, which I think is called Dream Child. And it's about the author of Alice in Wonderland and the inspiration for Alice. And there's just a few sequences that have Henson puppets. And I didn't, I hadn't seen the film, but Adam, our creature designer, sent that to me and said, you should watch this if you've never seen it. And it was actually a big part of informing the tone of our creatures. So what made you kind of go toward the puppet route? Was it just because this is where you, like this is, that was kind of the theme or the vibe of what films inspired Onyx? Or was it something you wanted to try? Like, where did that need for puppetry come from? Well, I definitely wanted practical effects because I also, as a director, I wanted to be challenged and that excited me. And I think because I'm also the director, it'll never be enough that Onyx is just doing bits. You know, I, uh, there, there's like an 88 minute long Onyx movie that is just a string out of gags yeah. <laughs> that might interest Andrew, the actor, and it might even interest some fans, but it doesn't interest Andrew, the director. So I always wanted to pursue practical effects from a directing standpoint, but I did not imagine that each of those characters would be puppets. I thought beefy bad boy would be a puppet. I thought the box demon would actually be a makeup with maybe puppeteered hands, but it would be someone's head in a box, kind of like Jambi from Pee-wee. And, and then the, the demon was going to be a, a suit, a person in a creature suit. And the ghouls were going to be makeups. And I reached out to Adam Doherty, the creature designer, because I was a fan of his from seeing his work at horror conventions over the years. And I said, could you take a look at this script and consider creating the puppet for Beefy Bad Boy? Just that. And he read the script and said, well, why aren't they all puppets? Isn't, isn't that the kind of movie you're trying to make? And I sat and thought, well, yeah, but I just didn't have the vision for it. It's just, I'm inspired by that stuff, but it isn't my work. It's not the work that I do. Adam does this day to day. That's been what he lives and breathes. And so he immediately saw that. He saw the ghouls as puppets. He saw Abaddon as a nine foot tall puppet crouched outside of the meat hut. And uh, it took his vision to really influence mine. And then I realized he was more correct than I was. That influence or that informs the tone that I was going for just as much as Onyx's shtick informs the tone. And so, yeah, as soon as he said that, I was on board. He sent me a sketch of the Abaddon puppet. And he said, see, this is something I don't think I've seen before where I have seen a guy in a creature suit. And I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. And so I really gave him free reign. And we worked on the designs together. I would give notes, but it was really him and his team that, that developed those characters fully. And how do you feel about it now, having gone through the experience of working with puppets? With <laughs> Would you want to go back? Oh, yeah, immediately. I, I, I've already told Adam, I've written about half of the sequel, and there's just more puppets and more creatures. Because I learned so much... Similar to the Kickstarter, people say, would you do a crowdfunding campaign again? And I think they, they assume I'd say no, just because it was so much work and it was so yeah. exhausting. But it was ultimately so fulfilling 
And I learned so much that I would do it again. I would do it differently. I have ways that I would streamline and ways that I might pivot along the way, but I would do it again. And the same with practical effects and puppets. I think Adam and I both, the second he saw the film, he, he said, I'm really proud of the work, but I, I can't wait to do, to, to do it again because I know I've learned a lot and could do this much better and bigger than last time. And I feel the same way. I'm, I'm glad you kind of mentioned going back to Kickstarter because I know some people, they do crowdfund and then they're like, never again. This is, this is, yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, make a movie I, I don't want to do instead yeah. of Kickstarter again. What, what uh, is it the community that kind of built around you or in the project through this crowdfunding campaign that's kind of drawing you back to the experience or is it something else? Well, it's, it's a little of, that it's actually it's a lot of that but it's also that i truly my kind of producerial mind really liked the gamification of a campaign oh, okay. and building out building out a schedule of okay two weeks in we're going to do this kind of stunt we're going to do a live read this many weeks in and we're going to have it like a telethon with people in chat helping to raise money uh oh we're hitting a lull i'm going to release a pin that says fight the lull and people like will raise their pledge to get that pin I, it just really worked with my brain and I know it doesn't for everyone, but it did for me. And I mean, not even factoring in the creative freedom it brought, I really liked it. It forced me to learn how to make vinyl toys. It forced me to reach out to vendors and figure out how to make t-shirts and posters and stickers and keychains. And I found that I like all of that. I like, you know, I've always been a big toy collector and a comic book fan. So the, the Kickstarter actually moved me into that world more than making films has where I made an Onyx comic book. I made an Onyx cartoon for the Kickstarter and again, a vinyl toy. So it kind of opened me up to the idea of, of thinking toyetically, I guess is what George Lucas calls it. Merchant through merchandising through merch, but especially like merch and products that kind of amplify the characters in a way Mm -hmm. like that doesn't feel untrue to their nature. Like George Lucas says, he created R2-D2 to be a cookie jar. (laughs) And that's why he's shaped that way. And when I think about the beefy bad boy, I think, well, it was always meant to be a kind of grotesque cabbage patch doll or garbage pail kid. So I'm going to make a beefy bad boy plush. The Battle Cats toys that Onyx collects in the film, I want to make as a toy line. So it's kind of all built into the DNA of Onyx's world, but it was the it was the Kickstarter that really got me into the physical process of each of those things. I, I like that, and I'm I'm glad you brought up George Lucas because right now we I, at No Film School we're looking at the Netflix store that's that's possibly opening up or or however that's gotcha. going to come, come to fruition, and then A24 has been doing this interesting thing with merchandising where you know they're releasing kind of. I guess like touchstones of their films that yeah. are popular. And I really want to see how merchandising in this new world where like anybody can have like an Etsy or Shopify or, you know, any kind of store yeah. where they can create merchandise about their little film or their big mm-hmm. film or their student film or their short, whatever, you know, like, cause yeah. it's fun to have something tangible from a story you like. And I, and I, and I, I really appreciate that. So it's really yeah. cool. So for the sequel, Lots more plushies because I'd, I'd, I'd love. I'd oh love yeah, and stickers. I'm a big sticker guy, and I had I had the the Onyx I don't know sticker on my water oh, nice. bottle, and I lost the water bottle. 
<laughs> well, I can send you another sticker. <laughs> Please do. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I keep losing my water bottle, so maybe I'll just stop doing stickers on my water bottles. <laughs> or I can send you five. So even if <laughs> right, you lose keep, five bottles. Yeah. Keep throwing them on there. Um, right. So wrapping the the production up, uh, you know, I'd like to kind of hear a little bit more about your challenges, not only as a smaller film, but also as, you know, a, a crew of multi-hyphenates. When you were kind of coming towards the finish line, what were, not your challenges, but, you know, how did you feel kind of coming toward the end? Were you rushing? Were you like, oh, we're getting our pages, everything's fine, like we're professionals? Or were you just, you know, pure chaos and just crash landing on you know, the, on the, on the runway. Well, luckily we had a a fail safe in place, which was our intention was originally to shoot everything in Massachusetts that included Mm -hmm. the mansion Onyx's home and Onyx's work. The, the meat hut was all going to be Massachusetts with maybe one day in LA on a green stage for VFX assets. And we always knew if things got too crunched, we could kick meat hut and Onyx's home to LA. And I would say maybe after week two in Massachusetts, we made the decision to do that. And it wasn't like, oh my gosh, like we're screwed. What do we do? It was, okay, it got us as tight as we were worried it could get. It's time to punt the Meat Hut and Onyx's home to LA. And then that gave us the room to continue to be as, I mean, you're as precious as you can be on an indie set, but it allowed us to be as precious as we had been leading up to that point, once we kicked that stuff to LA, it relaxed things a little bit. I say relaxed when it was still a mad dash (laughs) every day, but no, it never got to the point where we felt like we were losing track of things or missing things. We never moved on if we felt like we didn't get it, but it did take some problem solving even to make those days. Like one sequence, for example, and for those that haven't seen the film, I won't say the characters that are involved, but there's a, a scene where somebody is stabbed and transformed and onyx witnesses this and it was all supposed to be shot very traditionally get your master and then go in tighter and tighter and then get your reverses and maybe get little inserts of certain specials that you need and we just did not have the time to cover that whole sequence traditionally mm-hmm. and my dp said wait, wait, wait. everybody just thought we were all talking about how to problem solve he said wait just stop hold on hold on, hold on. i think i have an idea we all just sat there in silence in Bartok's office, his study. And then Dan, my DP said, okay, our only master is Onyx's POV through this painting. Mm-hmm. He's behind a wall watching this thing happen. Our master is just him tracking the action, but we only get the like necessary action. So we just pop through the four key moments. Anything else, we're just on Onyx's eyes or we're on a, a very disjointed, floaty close-up of the action. So it was really like close-ups of the of the the most important action, a kind of wandering master of the important action and then eyeballs eyeballs eyeballs. Yeah. And we got it shot and made our day and I knew as soon as he pitched that that that, that would cut. I was like, "Oh, that'll totally cut." And actually, it makes for a much moodier sequence. And now I always call it our De Palma sequence, <laughs> though I wouldn't dare compare us to him, but, but it, it has more of a mood and more of a, more of a voyeuristic feel than it would have initially had if we had shot it traditionally. And so it's a little corny to say that sometimes these problems and the way you solve them actually like bring about better results, but it did in that case. And another big production solve was 
that we lost our cemetery location. The finale happens in a cemetery. Mm. And we had a, a practical cemetery booked about 15 minutes from the mansion. And they backed out on us, I think, three days before. Yeah. And, Did uh, they read the script? Is that I don't real? think they ever read the script. <laughs> But I was always worried that was going to happen. I thought the mansion would read the script and say, never mind. But they loved it. And we're so collaborative. But so we lost the cemetery location. And my producers uh, very intelligently said, well, what if we took the money that was going to go to that location and going to the company move and renting buses and tents and heating units for all of it? What if we just gave that to the art department and they built a cemetery behind the mansion? And so that's what we did. And once again, it's better yeah. for it because not only is it a little more stylized mm-hmm. and feels like, you know, the cemetery in Pumpkinhead or Evil Dead or, you know, Army of Darkness on a smaller scale, it was then accessible to yeah. us all the time. So we could pop back into the mansion and shoot whatever we were needing to do there. But if we were like, oh, we need it, Onyx is close up in the cemetery the other night. The sun was coming up. It's too blue. Let's go out and reshoot it. And, you know, we didn't have to go 15 minutes down the road to the cemetery. Exactly. Exactly. We went right into the backyard of the mansion. I, I like that that idea of having something more accessible, uh, you know, especially when you're kind of, I don't, I don't want to say playing fast and loose, more more of like running gun. What, what, what word am I looking for? Like just quick and yeah. precise, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And that you just, you just, you have to get only what you need. Yeah. You know, there's no time. I mean, on, at least on Indies, there's, there's just not a lot of time to explore. Yeah. And there's not a lot of time to find it. And there's not a lot of time for alts and options. And so having everything there and knowing what you want as a director and as an editor is really important. There's kind of two two schools of thought with that, I think. Like you are I definitely think thinking more about what Nolan did for his short, I guess, the following, where he was mm-hmm. like, I'm only gonna shoot, I'm gonna cut the film in my head and only yeah. shoot what I need. You know, so it's like if I do coverage, I'm only going to do three lines, cut, swap to someone else. And he shot right. like he, you know, he shot the film like that. And I think that's kind of the approach you were taking. It's like I just need what I need. And like yeah. you being the editor are taking, you know, only the pieces that you need. And then I keep thinking to Gareth Edwards, who did recently the creator, and mm. his initial film Monsters was like dirt cheap, and it was him. Yeah with a camera and two actors running around Mexico doing the whole thing off an outline, like no script. And he was like yeah. improving the whole thing. But like that is, you know, three people compared to the crew of, you know, that you had, which was you know, yeah. what a couple dozen. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are definitely are projects that maybe would be more exploratory for me and maybe they would be looser, but with this, especially with the kind of brand of humor, it's, it's, they're all really editing based and timing based jokes and that maybe wouldn't be the same for other projects of mine, but it definitely was for Onyx. It's yeah. like, I know when I'm going to cut to the wide, I know what joke is going to sell better in a close. And so that's the one we focus on hitting, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of editing, you did the whole thing yourself. I mean, at yeah. least the, the edit part of it, not the VFX or you know, the kind of the screening yeah. of it all. You know, and, and you said yourself in the beginning that you kind of cut your teeth as an editor when you came to LA. How... Uh-huh. Was this experience cutting something so important? You know, were you like, comfortable with the challenge or was it like, oh no, now I really have to kind of test my skills? Yeah. No, I was very comfortable with the challenge. I think I've, I've shot and edited so much over the years. I, I told a friend at some point during the Onyx film, a friend that was back in LA while we were in Massachusetts, I said, 
it, it's taking every ounce of experience for me to make the days and make the days well. It's taken every music video I've shot, every short, every sketch. I used to work at a place called Nerdist and I was their in-house director and I directed a different music video parody or commercial parody every week oh, wow. or a piece of branded content for Fox's new Predator film or you know Hotel Artemis or whatever it was <laughs> or the Hitman video game. So one week would be a little a fight scene in the office or one week would be you know, a mystical supernatural short to support, I forget the zombie show on CWI zombie, but we, we just did so much content. And as I made Onyx, I thought, man, I'm glad that I shot and directed that much in the last six and six, six to seven years, because I needed all of that experience. Yeah. Every problem that we solved, I was pulling on and I don't know how people, and I know there are very successful filmmakers that their first or second feature might be one of the only things they've ever directed outside of a, a few shorts. There's, you know, I don't know how they do it because it took every ounce of experience. And the same for me as an editor. Once I got into the edit, I, I had the patience that I have because I've been editing since 1999 and I know I'll find the solution. You know, I, I, I get into a completely different mindset. Everything kind of quiets down and I get hyper-focused and, and I really enjoy it. I get really excited as I'm cutting. And I, I used to think I wouldn't, and I would complain to my wife about being an editor and, and how much I didn't want to be an editor. And the weird thing is now I enjoy that part of the process just as much as I enjoy writing or being on set. I really, really like the puzzle of it all. And especially when it fits the way I intended yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, it's very satisfying. I hope to get to that point someday because right now I'm in the telling my wife I hate editing things. <laughs> yeah. Because I... I'm the most... I'm the most, like, belligerent. I talk to myself. I cuss at myself. I cuss same, at the footage. Same, yeah. You know, <laughs> any, I'm big on continuity. And my producer, Olivia, was in the edit mm -hmm. with me and was, like, very much giving notes and direction at that point because I kind of go into editor brain mode. And she would say, I know you're cutting based on continuity, but I think you might want to take a look at another take for performance yeah. sake. And no you know, she would kind of yeah. totally, you see it. but I'm, I'm such yeah. a continuity hound. I told my actors that from the beginning, I said, you have to know this. I'm cutting this film. I will care where your hand is or whether or not the pen is in the same between the same fingers. So if that needs uh, hyper awareness from you, physical continuity, just know it matters to me. And, and yeah. everyone was great with it. But, but I, I, you know, yeah, I yell when something's like, ah, that, that hair is out of place. I can't use that close up because the hair moves from up here to down here. Sometimes I would let it go, but for the most part, I don't. Uh, I'm glad you had Olivia there to kind of be like, no, no, we're fine. We're, we're, we're okay. <laughs> she, yeah. yeah. Every once in a while, she'd be like, okay, I think you need to, <laughs> you need to chill. And then the funny thing is there's two huge continuity errors in the movie that I did not clock until we saw it on a big screen. And I won't say what they are, but they're so glaring. They actually become kind of Easter eggs. And I also That's think fun. they all, I, I also, and this is not, to, this is going to sound like I'm making excuses. I would like to think that I did not notice them because the edit is so fluid because I'm cutting on action and because it yeah. feels seamless to the brain. I'm hoping most people don't notice two giant continuity errors. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're always like, I feel like if it's not too drastic, it's it's perfectly fine. I remember watching Oppenheimer and there was a scene in the hallway where people were talking and they break the 180 degree rule. 
yeah. And my brain just goes like, whoop, I see that. And yeah. you know what? I didn't care. It, yeah. it was like 30 seconds of them doing a weird over the shoulder cut, you know? And I'm like, it's fine. Totally. It's a great story. And, you know, with, yeah. with Onyx, I didn't even notice it either. So, you know, we're, we're kind of running into an hour and I don't want to keep you any longer than that. But I wanted to talk to you about toolkits because for me, the most important thing well, while editing is, is my toolkit. And I've been doing it for about, you know, 15, maybe almost 20 years now. Also started on mini DV. And for me, it's more like live theater. So that's why I hate it because it's all, it's so repetitive, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but the, it, the, I, I love it. I love the experience of it because, you know, like you, I put in my 10,000 hours and yeah. now it's like, okay, I can fall back on that instinct and experience. But, you know, for you, do you, what did you edit on? I just edited on Adobe Premiere Pro and I am a very, I could talk about editing all day from an artistic standpoint and from a rhythmic standpoint and a pacing standpoint. Mm-hmm. But all I do when I edit is I use the blade tool and that's it. Same. <laughs> like, I, there's just no, uh, there's not, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I'll have to put in uh, slugs and markers of like VFX here or like I'll, I'll map in some real like rudimentary things for my, for, for VFX or even for sound. I do a lot of temp audio. I'll plug in my mic and just like let it run and I'll do sound effects and I'll add in temp ADR for other actors. But I mean, ultimately editing for me is just, it's just, you know, slicing and splicing. Like it feels linear, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I really like, I just, I just, I don't know. My editing teacher in film school, Vincent Labrudo, the sequences that he would show us were so big on fluid editing, editing on action, you know, editing should be invisible, et cetera, et cetera, but it should Mm -hmm. still have impact, but you just shouldn't know why immediately. And it should be something subconscious. And I just really like trying to find those moments. And I really like when I have to fight with a take, you know, I want to use a close out of this medium and it's just not matching. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to find that. I'm going to find the one frame where it matches and I'll, and that's where I'll cut. And I just love looking for that stuff, but it's really just about literally cutting for me there's not much well you know you say that but then you just mentioned something interesting about like putting in temp vfx not vfx i'm sorry temp temp sound effects and kind of doing your own fully like beatboxing to the microphone and like oh yeah yeah. i've actually never thought of that and i'm like oh man i gotta go back and like try that because that sounds you know informative for someone who is going to come on and, and, and make those changes for you yeah and it can be a little limiting for other people but ultimately, I, I ju- you know, we get locked into my timing and, and I would even, people would even say like, well, but this is going to change. And I say, no, it's not. When they come in and do their ADR, they're going to have to match to my temp. Mm-hmm. We, like we have to lock edit now. And again, that might change if I get bigger budgets and we can, things can stay more open for longer. But in order to get the film done in time, we needed to be locked by a certain month. And that meant my timing has to be mimicked. And there's only so much room to, to play, but ultimately I, you know, it's just another way I like having a hand on things. I try to leave room when I know, I know my sound designer, I've worked with him for like 10 years. I know when he's going to want something to breathe, Mm -hmm. I'll show him a cut and he'll say, I think you're, you're, this is a little too tight. I could do something really awesome if you just left that open-ended, but I leave spaces where I know people are going to help me fill in. 
spaces for music, but it is, it gets locked. I think a lot sooner than maybe with other people. I can see that. Yeah. You mentioned like you just using the blade tool and, and that's interesting because every time I talk to a different editor who works in premiere, they're like, Oh, I do this kind of weird custom thing. I I would talk to an editor who carries uh, shortcuts on a keychain on a, on a little USB drive. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and like for me, I'm a big, I do tracking with the mouse and I do a lot of keyboard shortcuts and some people are just always on the keyboard. And then, so yeah. for you, are you fine-tuning, are you using kind of the mouse with the blade tool to kind of fine-tune those cuts? Yeah. Yeah, I am. And I don't do, I have a few shortcuts that I recently, actually, my my laptop died, the one that I edited the Onyx movie on, but I had just gotten a new MacBook Air. And I thought like, this Air is probably just as powerful yeah. as my MacBook Pro from four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so, so I, I downloaded Premiere on my new MacBook Air. And none of my shortcuts were there. And it did fry me a couple days. Uh, I was like, I'm fucked. I don't, I'm lost with that. But I I almost didn't realize how many shortcuts I do use. But ultimately, no, I am, I am cutting with my mouse. And I like sometimes a slower process. And I don't know why that is, but like, I don't know. I like kind of having to do a couple of steps before something is executed. I'm just used to it. And maybe it is because like, technically I learned to cut on film. I mean, only in my first year of film school, but I'm fast in other ways, but in other ways I've had an editor, we had an assistant editor on this named Benji, who he just kind of organized everything for me at the top. It wasn't like he was with me throughout it, but got everything organized. And at one point I had to go to his house and, and he had, then at one point he had to uh, log into my computer and he watched me edit for a minute and he, he was just like, you know, there's like shortcuts for all of that. <laughs> and I was like, nope, I like going over here yeah. and clicking this. And yeah. I like going down here and clicking that. And I don't know. I'm Again, I'm fast in other ways, but I, I'm also kind of purposefully, I slow myself down in other ways too. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of, of I think, Premiere Pro for me is, is how I can kind of shift from one not version, but like one configuration of of the toolkit to different, you know? And I I agree with you, like me growing up cutting live theater, it was all about speed. I'm like, I got to get the show out. We're done. Like, we got to go shoot something else. And then for my film stuff, I tried to do that. And I realized like, I'm moving too fast. Yeah. I'm moving too fast. And I'm missing key moments. I'm not watching the film. So when I watch it back, I'm like, I'm bored. Why am I bored? Oh, because I didn't watch it i didn't take my time and i think shortcuts sometimes may get in your way you know sometimes you just need to use the mouse yeah and i I, and i usually i I, that's a good way to put it is like to kind of slow yourself down for the sake of not missing something because usually what i do is i'll cut with like one angle or shot being priority Mm -hmm. you know like if i know well i really like onyx's second take of this scene that i'll make that priority and i'll cut everything around that second take and I'll get through it quickly. Then I'll go back and say, all right, so the Onyx take was definitely my select, but everything else I put in there weren't really my selects. They were just what matched that Onyx take. So now let me go and watch every other take from every other actor and fine tune what's happening around the thing that I consider to be the priority. And it's not always Onyx, by the way, I should say in this movie. There's plenty of times where it's like, oh, the wide is priority because I yeah. I love seeing the scope of the office, or I love seeing the group shot. I want to, 
I want to lean on this, this five shot primarily and only use close-ups to be peppered in. But so I kind of cut first really fast and then go back. And, but it was funny because I was send cuts to my producers and they were like, so is this a rough or, and I was like, I mean, it's, it's something I don't, it's, I, I don't, yeah. Like I think because I'm my own editor and my own director, I don't really like, label cuts that way. Yeah. I mean, like, well, this scene is actually fine cut. This is a very fine cut. This is my 10th cut of the scene, but it's the first one you're seeing. So I guess you could call it a rough, you know, but I just don't, I don't label things. I'm a mess. I, I had a, a DP look at my timeline once and say, well, I don't know. Bowser might be a director, but he's not an editor <laughs> just because of how much of a mess it was. But I've since been validated by other editors that say, no, that's, that's how I work too. Mm -hmm. I just have an AE that's there to clean it up, cleaning up after me, but you know, I don't have anyone cleaning up after me. So it just looks like I, I spilled my bin of Legos everywhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same way whenever I have, especially when I have a, like a multi-channel audio uh, attachment oh, to yeah. it just goes all over the place. And after a while, I'm like, you know what? I'll clean it up later. I'll just Oh, I've tried to get better in delivering my audio. I work with my sound designer in a lot of smaller projects too. And he's like, Hey, could you try to keep all your dialogue on one track or two tracks? <laughs> uh, or can you keep FX down here? Can you keep music? And I'm like, music's up here. Music's down here. Music's over, over here. Place, yeah. Dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. <laughs> so I've gotten a little better at that. But I've also just started to work with people that kind of have sympathy for my process. Yeah. No, I, I, it, I'm noticing a lot more how, you know, we're all kind of weird creatives who do our, you know, we can be trained in the traditional quote unquote ways of doing things, but we all have our own quirks, you know, like, oh, yeah. Every painter, excuse me, every painter has, you know, a different style and different approach. And I think that's the same thing with actors, directors, and editors and writers. And it's just finding yeah. your community who can deal with your bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you have to know what works for you because like, I, you know, I, some things were cut logically. Like I cut the finale first because that had the most VFX. So my brain can say, sit down and cut that first. But then, you know, I really like cutting in a linear, I like going from front to back. I don't like popping around. And, and my, I know enough about my brain to know, I need to know that this part works before I can have the focus for this next part. Or sometimes if I was getting overwhelmed with a scene that was a little tedious, I would jump ahead to something that I knew would be fun. Mm -hmm. And my producers mm -hmm. would say like, but why are you so cool? You got this middle portion edited, but why we're still, and I'm like, because I needed the encouragement that that little, yeah chunk would give me you also just have to learn how you work and trust that because yeah ultimately you can't apply how everyone does things to across the board you know it just isn't gonna work yeah that it's funny you mentioned that there was a, a guy following youtube who restores paintings and it's like laborious work and he yeah. goes i leave the eyes for the last just because like <laughs> it's like my little treat and i'm like oh yeah yeah uh, yeah oh to it's the same with writing too you know, I, if I get an idea, oh, this is like an old lesson and I forget what book I read it in, but to never stop writing, if you're stuck, always kind of get to a point where you're like, oh, and I know what's going to happen mm -hmm. next. Oh, that's going to be so cool. And, and, and then deny yourself doing it right then because hold that for tomorrow and that'll get like you to the next. Yeah. And it's the same with editing too. I get to a point where I was like, oh man, the next scene is one I've been waiting to cut. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Yeah. 
because that like kind of appetite will get me going. It brings tomorrow. you back. Well, speaking yeah. of kind of tips and tricks for editing and writing and directing, and you know, you put this film onto the big screen with a team, but also, you know, with your own kind of two hands. And so I always kind of try to ask folks about what advice they would give to creators who are trying to do the same for their Uh first project. But every time I ask, it's different, you know, because the landscape continues to change. And and even in the in the three years you took to get this film off the ground and made and out in the wild, things have changed. Oh yeah. So what would be your piece of advice for creatives, you know, multi-hyphenates, I think, to uh, implement in their journey to get a film off the ground? I guess a big lesson I've learned, and this can be dangerous, but a big lesson I've learned is to not turn your nose up at any specific platform. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the work is what you make of it. Somebody could say, well, this is a YouTuber who made a movie, or somebody could say this is a TikToker who made a movie, or somebody could say this is a 41-year-old filmmaker (laughs) who learned to cut on film and went to school in the year 2000 who had to pivot and put his work on different platforms because of the ever-changing landscape of the industry. And I've seen friends that have have said, oh, I, I love that you did put your stuff on YouTube and that you thought, oh, I could put Onyx on TikTok and and they haven't pivoted the way I have. And I think it was my job at Nerdist that made me understand that these different platforms were nothing to look down on. I can utilize them for my own means, to my own ends. I could make a film through a character that was viral on the internet that gets into Sundance. Yeah, And so, and I don't say that to congratulate myself. I say that to encourage other filmmakers to utilize these platforms and the the all of the different I fucking hate to say apps but all of these <laughs> apps just use them for your own means you can keep a kind of what you care about at the center i can keep storytelling structure pacing at the center of my interests while i'm putting content out on tiktok you know the fact that i had a character that could do a silly dance and get a million views but then those viewers could go to kickstarter to help fund my feature, it's a little bit of me gaming the system to get what filmmaker Andrew has wanted since he was eight years old. And so I, I think a lot of filmmakers might miss out on opportunities if they don't open their minds to the ever-changing landscape and say, I could, I could put stuff on YouTube and still be a filmmaker. I could put stuff on TikTok and still be a, an actor and, and you know, hopefully an okay one. <laughs> and just don't let the systems kind of be defined by other people. Even crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember I talked to some filmmakers that have a huge following online. And and, and I said, you guys should crowdfund something. You guys have such a big following. And they said, I I think it would make us look kind of lesser than, like, why doesn't the industry want to finance my film? Like, I had to go and ask people for money. And I didn't say this to them, but I wanted to say, like, well, the industry is not financing your movie because the industry is fucked and dumb most of the time. You're going to wait around for the, for the development deal that's going to lead to your script. It happens for some people. It wasn't happening for me. And so I'm glad I didn't look at crowdfunding as like kind of a lesser way to get something off the ground because I think that's a trick. And again, I just think it's giving too much power to the systems that are in place, that have been yeah. in place for so long that don't give a fuck about independent film yeah. and, and independent voices. So 
I don't know where the advice is in there, but just don't limit, just don't limit yourself. Yeah. And, and, and keep making things. Every short that I've made, every sketch, every music video parody. I made a Star Wars music video parody that is a Star Wars is born. And it's a parody of a star is born <laughs> with Kylo Ren. And I mean, that's like the peak of, of, of cringe internet, low hanging fruit comedy. But I learned a lot making it. And I tried to find ways with my writers at Nerdist to make it actually funny and not as cringy as it could be. It's still pretty cringy. But the point is, making stuff like that was my boot camp. And I utilized it to learn more and grow more as a director and then still wanted to make my own feature film. Yeah. Just keep making shit and keep learning shit for your own, to further your own um, exploration of the craft and don't worry about what other people are thinking. I like that. And I liked, I liked your, your words about not looking down at possibilities yeah. from different apps or streaming platforms or yeah. communities. I, yeah, I don't know. What, oh, yeah. yeah. There's some really... Every time I hear somebody trash TikTok, I'm like, you know how many funny people... I watch TikTok to laugh. I don't watch SNL to laugh. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there are some funny motherfuckers on TikTok that are... They're, they're the next whatever. I mean, it's, 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 it's... Yeah, to look down on a platform or a people demographic that's finding a way through or on that platform is, I think, yeah, it's shitty to look down on that stuff. I couldn't agree more. And now with, you know... Onyx finding his way on the big screen via Sundance. We have yeah. Talk to Me from YouTubers out of Australia. Totally. Like the landscape is different. Go make your thing. Don't poo poo on anything that can yeah. help you achieve your you know story. And I think that's really yeah. cool. Andrew, thank you so much. Thank Congratulations you. on the film, on Sundance, on Onyx, on you know the sequel, which which is going to be kind of <laughs> cool and fun. I think. I uh, hope so. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So Onyx, The Fortuitous, and The Talisman of Souls drops October 19th all over Los Angeles. And I think it's... I Did I see it also scheduled for the 18th at... Yes, we, we do have a screening on the 18th yeah. as well. But it's like at, one at Universal screening. Universal City Walk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the 18th, it's a preview screening in LA. But by all means, come to the 18th, come to a screening on the 19th, come to any screening at all. Definitely. And uh, you can find tickets through Fathom, Fathom, Fathom Events, fathomevents.com. Yeah. Go see it. Go support. Go laugh. Go watch some spooky 80s inspired horror. <laughs> All right, Andrew. <laughs> thank thank you. you again. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Right, bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.